What's the purpose of the American legal system? Is it to establish standards, maintain order, protect liberties and rights, resolve disputes, administer justice, dole out retribution, bring about equity, or ensure social cohesion? To some degree, the law is meant to do all those things. As to whether or not it does so successfully, unfortunately, like all systems, the legal system is imperfect. Also, because of structural inequities, bias, and differentials in power and privilege, there's a lot about the legal system that is inherently unjust. Throughout the course of this season, I interviewed a lot of people with experience navigating the legal system, and it became clear that the law plays an important and unique role in how workplaces are structured, as well as in who has access to which opportunities. So as we were pulling this season's content together, we decided to have an episode dedicated to looking at the impact of some, but certainly not all, areas of law on the way we work and live. I'm Dara Lise Lyons, and I've required the help of lawyers many times in my lifetime, whether purchasing a property, entering into or exiting a contract, or getting into a minor infraction at the age of 17. And far less frequently, I've gone to court, mostly small claims and landlord-tenant issues. Anyway, the law has been important in my life, and it's important to others. And it can be confusing, but it can also be empowering depending on how it's employed and whether or not we understand it and can make use of it prudently and protectively. Before we delve into today's topic, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you from the ancestral lands of the Lenape people and to thank Indigenous people, past, present, and future, for their resilience and their contributions to a nation that was built on stolen land using stolen labor. This is episode 10 of season three of the Demystifying Diversity podcast, brought to you in partnership with Temple University's Fox School of Business Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, Sedwick. This is The Legal System, Justice, Injustice, Law, and Disorder. Just a quick disclaimer, I'm not an expert in the law, and the goal of this episode isn't to expand anyone's legal expertise. My only hope is that in speaking about the legal system, it will become clear that law is a unique category of work that arguably has implications for pretty much every other type of work, as well as for how we live our lives. I've always been interested in using law as a way to try to achieve justice, as strange as that sounds, that law and justice might not always come together, but I've always been interested in law as a tool for social change. That was Charlotte Alexander. Charlotte holds the Connie D. and Ken McDaniel Women Lead Chair as an Associate Professor of Law and Analytics at the Colleges of Business and Law at Georgia State University, where she uses computational methods to study legal text with a particular focus on understanding how courts process and resolve employment disputes and other types of civil lawsuits. Charlotte also founded and directs the university's Legal Analytics Lab, which works towards a legal system that embraces data to solve intractable problems and create a more just society. And yes, the law can be a tool for social change. It can also reinforce the status quo. 
In fact, because the application and administration of the law relies heavily on the application of a concept known as precedent, the legal system is unique. In deciding a legal matter, attorneys and judges look at previous acts, statements, cases, and decisions to justify their present argument or decision. In the legal system, there's something called precedent, which may be familiar to most people, which is where judges, when they're deciding a case, have to look to prior cases and see how they were decided, and then try to be consistent with the way that previous cases have been decided with similar scenarios. And so the legal system, is, it's a very pattern-oriented system, and that even applies to cases that don't even go to court. So when the lawyer is trying to assess, is it worth going to court, the lawyer also is going to look to precedent because the lawyer is trying to make a prediction about how viable this case is going to be if it actually goes to court. So the patterns in the legal system that the judges follow are also have effect outside the legal system. My view is that these patterns are themselves, they contain within them biases of all types. And so if the only types of cases that ever go to court are ones where you have fairly well-resourced parties who are fighting out their dispute with, you know, a relatively large amount of resources available to them, well, then the law is going to be shaped around the interests of those types of litigants and those patterns are going to repeat themselves. That's not to say that precedent means that no changes are ever possible. Jackie Lipton is a law professor at the University of Pittsburgh and an attorney. She's also a literary agent who founded Raven Quill Literary Agency before moving to her current agency, the Tobias Literary Agency. And she's the author of numerous academic texts and the book, Law and Authors, A Legal Handbook for Writers. Here's what Jackie had to say about precedents. I think precedents are as flexible as the judges want them to be and as Congress wants them to be and whatever. The interesting things, because I think there's a ton of problems with the legal profession and with legal education, and is if you look at the 200-year history-ish of the Republic, the positions of power in all three branches of government at federal and state levels forever, historically, have overwhelmingly been held by lawyers. And what that means in the history of this country is white men. And that's changing now, I grant you that. But I think I looked at the statistics of who's been president, more than half the president, all presidents have been men, more than half the presidents are lawyers, and the one non-white president we had was a lawyer. So lawyers are tremendously overrepresented And they tend to be lawyers from those elite schools. And I am overgeneralizing, I know that. But the fact is, lawyers are terribly overrepresented and lawyers historically have overwhelmingly been privileged white men. For anyone who needs a refresher on their middle school social studies lessons, there are three branches of American government, the legislative, the executive, and the judicial. All of these branches are overwhelmingly represented by lawyers, and some, i.e. the judicial branch, are exclusively represented by lawyers turned judges. Then add to that the fact that present-day decisions have to be rooted in the past, and it becomes immediately evident that a relatively small and very privileged segment of the population is making decisions that determine all of our rights, privileges, and punishments. 
So how do we find fairness in a system that requires everything to be rooted in history when historically people of underrepresented identities were left out of the decision-making process and often denied due process? Here's Charlotte again. I've only been talking about courts, but of course policing, and I think we all know these biases exist. But historically, courts have not been data-generating entities. Our courts on the federal level and on the state level don't do a good job of tracking what they do in bulk and then producing data that's easily analyzable and particularly not a good job at including other variables or other, you know, what we call features like race, ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic status, gender identity, all of these. So if we want to do better than our intuitions, if we want to actually quantify the difference in outcomes and try to model out the influence of these other factors, we need data. And we just don't have it. And we don't have it yet. We don't have enough data to fully understand the ways in which systemic inequities impact people's lived realities. But what we do have are a lot of examples of how various laws and cases impact people's lives at home and at work. Liz Brown is an associate professor law and taxation at Bentley University, who earned her B.A. from Harvard College and her J.D. from Harvard Law School. Liz represented Fortune 100 companies for 13 years prior to joining Bentley's faculty. There are so many cases that the Supreme Court is going to decide in the next couple years that are going to affect workplace equity because of the makeup of the court right now, extremely conservative as it is. Their decisions are not likely to be ones that I'm going to be very happy about and my colleagues who work on employment law are going to be very happy about which makes it all more important for listeners to know their rights, to know their rights at work, to know their privacy rights, to understand the ways in which their employers can keep tabs on them, can monitor, can make decisions. It's really important not to assume that you have lots of privacy rights at work. It's really important to question your employers as to how they are using the information that they're collecting. And doing so, I think, can help establish a greater level of trust in the workplace. So it's our responsibility. It's all of our responsibilities to understand how information is being collected and used about us, and then to act accordingly and choose employers accordingly to the extent that people have the ability to do that. These past few years have really illuminated how important it is to care for our health. The place where I go for all my health and wellness supplements is Vita Supreme. Vita Supreme uses all organic ingredients and has a wide range of supplement options that can help with immune support, heart health, energy, mental health, pain relief, sleep, anti-aging, digestion, diabetes, and more. Their products have helped me reduce joint pain and increase vibrancy. And if you read their online testimonials, you'll find glowing endorsements from their customers who at every 
every age and stage of life are feeling better than ever. Vita Supreme believes that health radiates from the inside out, and I can tell you from personal experience that their supplements have made a positive difference in my life. To receive 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. Your discount will be applied at checkout. There's no code required. Also, as a special offer with your first order, you can receive a free 15-minute coaching session with one of their wellness experts to find out more about what you can do to improve your health and your habits. Just send your name and preferred contact information to support at vitasupreme.com. Once again, to get 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. And to receive your free coaching session, email support at vitasupreme.com and tell them the Demystifying Diversity podcast sent you. Through innovative and dynamic educational initiatives, Temple University's Fox School of Business provides students with real-world, local, and global business opportunities. At the Fox School of Business, you can choose from a wide range of undergraduate, graduate, certificate, and continuing educational programs. Whatever your academic and professional path, you'll learn practical strategies for workplace success at a university that is committed to encouraging and respecting diversity in all forms and perspectives. The Fox School of Business, which includes the Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, has built an inclusive, welcoming environment where everyone is emboldened to reach their full potential. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu slash DDP for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workplace. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu slash DDP for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workforce. With options for students and professionals at every stage of life, including undergraduate, graduate, certificate, and continuing educational programs, the Fox School of Business has something just right for you. So make sure to check out fox.temple.edu ddp to learn more. Did you know that your employer has the right to monitor your emails, computer usage, and your medical and healthcare data, which means they may even be privy to such sensitive information as your reproductive cycles? I didn't until I started interviewing people for this season. But I did know that Supreme Court decisions can impact a wide range of critical issues, such as whether or not a company has the right to fire an employee based on their identity to whether a person can get an abortion. Because there is so much about our everyday experiences at work that stems as a direct result of legal decisions, it would be impossible to do justice to how much the justice system impacts us. So I'll just mention a few examples. For instance, the 2007 Supreme Court decision, Ledbetter versus Goodyear Tire and Rubber, was actually decided against Ledbetter in favor of her previous employer, which meant that the Supreme Court tacitly gave employers permission to engage in unequal pay based on gender, provided they didn't get caught. 
This decision had such a severe civil rights impact that it prompted a bipartisan campaign for change that resulted in the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. And Charlotte Burroughs, who played an instrumental role in bringing the Ledbetter Act to fruition, told me the story firsthand. Charlotte was designated by President Biden as chair of the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, EEOC, on January 20th, 2021. She has served as a commissioner of the EEOC for multiple terms and previously served as associate deputy attorney general at the United States Department of Justice, as well as general counsel for civil and constitutional rights to Senator Edward M. Kennedy. Lily Ledbetter was someone who had worked for almost 20 years as one of the few managers at a tire company doing all kinds of work, working her way up. And one day gets an anonymous note saying that she was being severely underpaid as compared to her male counterparts, including men that she was training up and supervising. And that turned out to be true. She goes through the courts. She wins at trial. She wins at the courts of appeal. The courts always said there wasn't a problem. We get to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court changes the rule and says, no, it's been 20 years. She didn't come to us earlier. So you're out of luck, Lily, even though the jury got it, the court of appeals got it, but you lose because we're going to interpret the Civil Rights Act narrowly. And literally the late Justice Ginsburg felt so strongly about this. Normally the Supreme Court just writes and sends their opinion out and you get it on pen and paper or on the internet. She felt so strongly about it that she read her dissent explaining why she thought it was wrong, explaining why, look, most people don't know what their colleagues are getting. And it takes them a while to figure out that they're being shortchanged. And in this case, but for that anonymous note, she still would not know. And so that was such a passionate dissent and so plainly common sense at the same time it was grounded in law that literally, I'm not sure she had finished speaking before Senator Kennedy had called (laughs) and told his staff that we were going to be introducing a bill that week. I think he might have said the next day. And so we were off to the races. (laughs) I remember working very closely with our labor staff. So I was on the Judiciary Committee at the time, and the, the senator was the chair of the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. And so that was the committee that would have the jurisdiction over the Ledbetter bill. And I remember going down to the Senate cafeteria and sitting with some of the women's groups and talking through what the bill would need to say. (laughs) So we had it written pretty swiftly and introduced, and, and obviously we're working with the House, which had the same buyer that this needed to happen. But I will tell you, nonetheless, despite the energy around that, it took a while. It took a while to get the bill through. Chair Burroughs said it required a great deal of perseverance to get the Lilly Ledbetter Act passed. And she said she admired Lily for advocating not only for herself, but for generations to come. Lily never gave up. She never got discouraged. And I think what I take from that more than anything else is how enormously important it is to remember that those things that are important, that matter, particularly in civil rights, it takes time. And That's unfortunate, but it also took time to get to the place of injustice. And so 
she is such an inspiration for so many things, but that in particular, that you stick with it, you put your shoulder to the wheel, you don't give up if it doesn't work the first time. And we were able to get that bill through because of her, because of her selflessness. The one thing that I have always regretted about that bill and will never really feel right about is that we could not constitutionally write it in a way that would be retroactive. So she could not benefit. Although others going forward could benefit, it was not possible to write it in a way that would allow Lily to get what the jury had said, of course, you should be reimbursed. We weren't able to do that under the law. And so that is something that I do regret about it. But I think nonetheless, it has been an enormous example, frankly, of what regular folks can do and the importance of doing it. So I just, I count it as one of the great honors of my career to have worked on that bill. Although Lily was never able to collect the retroactive pay that would have rectified two decades of inequity, her actions have enabled subsequent petitioners to be paid equally for their work under the law and to bring suit within 180 days of the most recent discriminatory pay cycle, rather than within 180 days after the first instance of inequitable payment. The Ledbetter Act is so influential and deterministic that it's what many people think about when they think about pay equity. Demystify diversity, making work safe for you and me. Shoulder to shoulder we embark, invite the lightness and the dark. Let's embrace one another, single colleagues, working mothers, people of all points of view. Can we see each other? Crystal Harold is an associate professor in human resource management and a Paul Anderson Research Fellow at Temple University's School of Business. Prior to pursuing her current career path, she worked as a strategic human resources consultant for numerous governmental agencies, including the Air Force, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, and the Department of the Interior. Yeah, I mean, and there are laws that organizations can't do these things, right? There's the Equal Pay Act, and that, that's mostly focused on, you know, making sure that women and men are paid the same amount for the same work. But earlier versions of the Equal Pay Act basically required that an individual or a woman who felt that she was being unpaid relative to her male counterparts bring that suit within some specified time period after the first instance of pay discrimination, And so, you know, in the first 90 or 120 days, you're just kind of getting settled. You don't know what others are getting paid. And so then the statute of limitations would be done and you find out five years later that you've been being paid unfair and there was nothing that you could do. And so the Lilly Ledbetter Act, which was signed into law when President Obama was in office, basically resets the clock. So every unfair pay cycle, an individual has the opportunity now to to litigate that. That, of course, requires that they find out that they've been paid unfairly, which is a big what if. Sometimes the legal system and the judicial system are employed in ways that rectify wrongs and dismantle inequities. Other times, the law intensifies social disparities. That's not to say that lawyers and judges intend to do harm. 
but simply to acknowledge that they can't foresee the devastating consequences of their actions, which I attribute to the reality that there is an overrepresentation of certain identities and experiences in the House, Senate, Judiciary, and Executive branches, and an underrepresentation of historically marginalized voices. So when we think about something like America's mass incarceration epidemic and the criminalization of race, especially when compounded by poverty, we can trace the disproportionate imprisonment of financially disadvantaged brown and black folks back to laws, bills, and policies that were undeniably biased. In fact, many who played a role in enacting these policies have realized with hindsight that they were wrong. Timothy Welbeck is the director for the Center of Anti-Racism Research and an assistant professor of instruction at Temple University. He's a civil rights attorney, a scholar of law, race, and culture, a writer, a hip-hop artist, and an Arlen Specter Fellow. He told me about how, in his academic fellowship, he examined how the federalization of criminal law has led to expansive growth in federal law enforcement and imprisonment. A few years ago, I was selected to be an Arlen Specter Fellow at Jefferson University. What Specter Fellows are tasked with doing is accessing the Arlen Specter archives and finding an area of research that to some degree is relevant to the late senator's career. So he was both a prosecutor and also a long-term senator as well. And so there is a wide array of different papers and research materials that are there. And so I am often concerned with mass incarceration and racial disparities within the criminal justice system. And so that's what I wanted to explore. And particularly, what I said in my abstract was how the United States incarcerates more people than any other nation in recorded history in terms of both sheer number of people and percentages of people. And to look at how there are staggering racial disparities that coincide with this, this carceral state, it's worth continuing to examine, particularly when you look at our protracted history with shadow slavery. So I went in wanting to look at that. And particularly because the late senator, he was one of the supporters of the bill. And there are even prior legislation that he offered that was even to some degree some of the framework for what became the 94 crime bill. So I was interested to see, one, his role in the creation of the crime bill, and then two, trying to speculate how would he look at it in the hindsight now? Because there are people who are involved in the 94 crime bill who now, with the benefit of hindsight, have to some degree disavowed their their participation, whether it's President Biden or Secretary Clinton or um, President Clinton himself or and other elected officials at the time have talked about it was a mistake. It was an overcorrection or it was short sighted in some of his aims. And so I was looking at that. When I asked Timothy what sort of corrective measures could be taken to undo some of the damage and impact of racial disparities in the criminal justice system, here's what he said. We could talk the rest of the time about that, but I guess to give you the abridged version, what I would say is that we have to first reimagine how we criminalize populations of people, what we deem to be a crime, who we deem to be criminal, who we believe to be worthy of the full brunt and weight of the criminal justice system. We have to address that. 
in an abstract way because that informs how we police communities, who we charge, what we charge them with, and informs conviction rates, sentencing rates, all of that. So we have to get past that. We also need to, in another conversation, limit the public's interactions with the police. We have, again, one of the largest police forces in the modern world, and we have the most violent and deadly police force in the entire world. Police officers in America kill about three people a day. And so there's there's no other modern nation that can say that. But beyond that, though, part of what's happening is we are sending police officers into too many situations where they're having arbitrary interactions with people. We don't need police officers, for example, to responding to someone with a mental health crisis. We don't need the police responding to every situation where people might be arguing with each other. Sometimes we might be better served sending a social worker. With the automation and technology that we have, police officers don't need to enforce a traffic code to the extent that they do. And it's actually one of the leading areas where fatalities happen with what are supposed to be routine traffic stops. So we need to, to some degree, not only reimagine policing, but also remove some of these interactions. And then lastly, we need to look at, to the extent that we're going to have prisons, ways that we can get back to rehabilitating people, giving them support services, educational services, and preparedness to enter into the real world once they leave incarceration. And so part of that means offering them support when they leave. Part of that also as a society means that we have to remove some of the stigmas of those who have served time. There was a period in our society where we said someone has served their debt to society, so to speak, but we don't believe that. People's criminal records follow them around like a pernicious shadow. And so we let that define who they are and the level of rights and accesses and privileges that they have. We'll talk more about the criminal justice system and the ways that how people view it determine its implementation later in the episode. But before we do, I'd like to recognize that in speaking about policies, it's important to remember to delve beneath the surface. Philosophy determines policy. And what I mean by that is that social perceptions about people's potential contributions to the collective, based on identity factors such as race, class, and gender, have a lot to do with who is punished and how they're punished. And when philosophies shift, policies also shift. Arthur Garrison told me that social perceptions around gender have led to the restructuring of the women's prison system. Arthur has more than 15 years of criminal justice, academic, and practical experience. Before joining academia, he worked as a pre-sentence investigation officer, a criminal justice planner, and a senior researcher. He has written more than 25 policy reports and evaluations on various initiatives, including drug treatment, adult and juvenile crime prevention and reduction programs, crime pattern analysis, and law enforcement crime reduction programs. And he's presented more than 30 papers at various state, regional, and national criminal justice and policy conferences. Arthur is also the author of Race and Criminal Justice History, Rhetoric, Politics, and Policy, and the author of Chained to the System, The History and Politics of Black Incarceration in America. At one time, there was a theoretical, philosophical difference between male prisons and female prisons. To make long story short, we've pretty much abandoned the distinction. 
And I'm not sure women didn't get the short end of the stick when we abandoned the distinction. But even now, we're still trying to, how do we deal with women who have children who are in prison? And then in the 80s and 90s, we began to care about men who are fathers. And how do we deal with that when they're in prison and their children? It's a constant trying to get that individualism with a macro design machine. What did you mean by when you said, I'm not sure women didn't get the short end of the stick with abandonment of the distinction between male and female prisons? Female prisons originally. Now there's a racial component, but we're going to leave that aside. Let's just take the general thing. The theory about women criminals in the middle, late 1800s, both here and in England, the theory was the reason that they are criminal is because some man took advantage of them. And they were not taught the, the women's role in society wasn't inculcated in them when they were girls. So they don't need punishment. They need to be brought into the femininity that they have. And the reason that they are criminals is because it wasn't given to them and taught into them or some man took advantage of them. So female prisons were built along a cottage mentality and a mentality of family orientation. And it was very rehabilitated oriented. So a woman comes in and she's a criminal. Okay, so now we teach her how to be a homemaker and home economics and how to sew. And you know, so it was paternalistic, don't get me wrong, but it was built on the idea that we don't punish them because women are the softer sex, so on and so forth. And so we're going to care for them and get them in a place where when they leave, They can take care of themselves, get married, have a family, have kids, so on and so forth. That was the mindset. Now, male prisons is, okay, we need to punish these barbarians. Rehabilitation had its limits in theory. Men was about punishment and incapacitation. So women had rehabilitation and it was not harsh. Men's prisons were men's prisons. All right. As the women's movement came in and paternalism crashed and burned, and we're all equal, women's prisons became like men's prisons. And then we, in the 80s and the 90s, as we were trying to figure out what to do with women who were in prison and were mothers, and then we realized, wait a minute, fathers are in prison and they matter too. Okay, that's where we are now. And we're trying to balance the thing. But the paternal protective theory had its issues, but women's prisons were not what they are now. I'm not so sure women didn't get the short end of the stick when we threw the paternalism out. I'm not sure they got all that much better a deal with treating them like we treat men in prisons. That's not to say we should abandon gender equity. It's simply to acknowledge that rehabilitative models are fundamentally different than punitive ones. And also that how we conceive of women's roles and agencies shapes how they're treated, which is true in jail and true at our jobs. For instance, Liz shared about the 2014 Hobby Lobby case in which the Supreme Court ruled that a business owned and operated by a family whose members held certain religious convictions had the right to deny an employee health care coverage that included birth control or pregnancy termination drugs. In Hobby Lobby, in this case where you've got this craft store basically saying, we're not going to buy birth control for our employees. Nobody's asking the owners of the company to use birth control. It violates their religion. 
But what they're doing is essentially stopping other people based on the company's religious beliefs. So it's an extension of religious freedom outside the religious person, whether that's a human being or a corporation. And that concerns me because we get our healthcare insurance primarily through work. Most people do. And so if your work is limiting the kinds of healthcare coverage you can get, for example, you can't get contraception, you can't get coverage for abortion. There's certain other really important provisions that in the rest of the world are considered basic rights. If your employer curbs what kinds of benefits you can get based on the employer's religious beliefs, that can have a profound impact. There are innumerable ways that the law shapes employees' lives. And to complicate matters even further, laws operate differently based on a whole host of factors, one of which is geography. Even though we live in the United States, different states are governed by different rules and regulations. For instance, an LGBTQ employee working in Texas doesn't have legal protection against discrimination under Texas state law, whereas an LGBTQ employee in California does. To be clear, when it comes to anti-discrimination laws, federal law can supersede state law, but navigating these situational nuances and jurisdictional issues can be tricky. Just look at how LGBTQ folks were denied the right to marry in certain states far longer than in others and still don't have the right to marry under 13 state constitutions. But federal law has rendered those prohibitions unenforceable. And legally speaking, if not in terms of practice, segregation was abolished in the northern states long before many southern states followed suit. The same is true for the abolition of slavery. And more recently, we can look at how the Supreme Court has put women's rights to abortions in the hands of state law as opposed to federal law. The point is, it's easy to see how differences of geography play a significant role in people's experiences. As a labor and employment attorney, Stephanie Gantman Kaplan, who asked me to call her Steph, spends a lot of time examining different employers' policies and ensuring that they're compliant with federal, state, and local law. Steph is a partner at Blank Rome and was listed in the 2020 Philadelphia Business Journal as Best of the Bar Employment Litigation. She is also a child advocate. So every handbook that I work on, you're thinking about the federal laws. As far as which state laws apply, it depends on the workforce. Some have a bulk in one office and then a handful of remote people across the country. So it doesn't make sense necessarily to take you know, I'll pick on California because they have the most robust policies, uh, laws rather. If you have one employee in California and 50 in Pennsylvania, it wouldn't necessarily make sense to have California law apply to all 51 of your employees. So it's a little bit fact specific, which makes it nuanced and complicated. And a lot of times it can mean, you know, you do an addendum or you have certain things that are state specific for your workers in other places. It's not always even clear which state has the most generous law. They might just have different laws. Right. So one state might require sick time to be accrued in a certain basis and another state might let you front load. It's not that one's better than the other, just they have different requirements. So by necessity, you might have to have different tweaks to your policies. So companies are doing their best to comply with each of the different laws, all while operating across many states. There is an undeniable relationship between the law and the ways in which organizations do business. 
In fact, it's that relationship that inspired Temple University's Fox School of Business to hire Leora Eisenstadt, an associate professor in the Department of Legal Studies, a Murray Schusterman Research Fellow, and the director of the Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, Sedwick. Leora is also an assistant producer and consultant for the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And as you'll hear her talk about, there can be tremendous value in having a legal educator teaching at a business school. Employment law really fits into a business school quite well. If you think about it, everybody's either an employer or an employee, or I guess you could be an independent contractor, but at some level, you either manage or you work for someone. And so everything that we think about in terms of what are the boundaries of that relationship, what are the laws that govern it? What are you allowed to do and not allowed to do? What should you expect in your workplace? What are sort of the basic precautions that should be taken from a safety perspective, from a discrimination perspective, from a pay wage and hour perspective, from a privacy perspective, everything that goes into how you spend what is truly actually a larger part of your life (laughs) than anywhere else. We spend the most amount of time typically at work. And so all of those conversations are part of employment law. I'll admit that prior to interviewing so many legal experts, I held the incorrect assumption that employment law consisted of handling issues after the fact. I thought it was about lawsuits and sanctions. I had no idea about preventative law. Yet all of the attorneys I spoke with shared that what they love most about the law is when they can work to ensure in advance that people's rights are protected and that organizations are building safe, inclusive, and equitable environments. They said that part of preventative law includes establishing policies for what to do if and when discrimination or abuse occurs and how to institute procedures for intervention and to ensure against retaliation. But they told me that by and large, their favorite type of work was to work at a systemic level to ensure justice and equity in advance. And I should tell you that when it comes to using the law to prevent problems, those applications don't stop at business. Tamar Pearson-Brown is the Associate Dean for Equity and Inclusive Excellence and a Clinical Associate Professor of Law at University of Pittsburgh School of Law. She's also the director of the Health Law Clinic, which operates as a medical legal partnership with UPMC Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. Tamar told me about how law and medicine often intersect. Medical legal partnerships are arrangements where there are legal professionals who work in tandem with medical professionals to address uh, a comprehensive vision of healthcare for patients. And this comprehensive vision of healthcare acknowledges that when we think about what health is, studies show that about 40% of health are genetic factors, quality of healthcare that you receive, but 60% of what goes into making someone healthy are the social determinants of health, right? These are things like the kind of neighborhood that you live in, the quality of education that you receive, your socioeconomic status, right? Those social factors that bear on health. Unfortunately, in this country, so much of our social system is influenced by our legacy of racism. It's influenced by structural racism. It's influenced by racist policies and practices. And so those then impact 
who has access to what quality of education, what caliber of neighborhood, what kind of access to, to fresh food, fresh fruits and vegetables. And so it results in outcomes that fall along racial lines. So if people of color are more likely to receive public education from schools that are disproportionately funded as compared to schools that are predominantly attended by white students. And then we look at those education outcomes and we say, well, people who have higher levels of education have better health outcomes over the long run. We can begin to see how some of these health outcomes will align with race. We see that people of color really without regard to educational attainment, have worse health outcomes than people of white races who have the same educational attainment. So then we have to look at it's not just the access to resources, but it must be something about the the way that race plays itself out, the social construction of race, the way that racial caste impacts opportunities, and then how those opportunities impact our health. All of these things are related. And so there's two things that I want to say about that. One is that our practice of law must be attuned to all of these intersectional systems. But that also means that when we're looking at our health outcomes, we can't attribute it to just one factor. We can't say, oh, well, this one person made a poor health choice or this one person is an outlier with respect to their health outcomes. We have to look at how all of these things intersect and relate to one another to begin to think about problem solving and and working towards equity, which would be a state of health in which everyone had the opportunity, the same opportunity to experience the full measure of their health. As Tamar mentioned, we can't attribute health to just one factor, nor can we attribute justice to just one factor. Everything is connected, which is why there's a correlation between things like socioeconomics and race or employment and life expectancy, or education and incarceration. Here's Arthur again. Tell my students, look, in theory, race should have nothing to do with the criminal justice system. It shouldn't matter in the slightest. Okay, we all know that it does all over the place. Why? Read his digest version of the whole story. Colonies show up, Virginia, slavery, 1619, and the purpose, and we need to control these slaves. The need to control these slaves in the South birthed the slave patrols. It birthed the slave laws, which said slaves, by definition, had to be Black. Indentured servitude slowly is washed out of America. Laws specifically say whites cannot be slaves. All right, then. So slavery and Black skin, by definition, by statute, is showing up in the middle to late 1600s. All right, then. Slave patrols show up. The whole purpose of slave patrols was to prevent slave rebellions, chase down runaway slaves. And that issue bleeds all the way through American history up and into the Civil War, 200 plus years of this. Civil War is over. Reconstruction is abandoned 10 years later. Jim Crow takes over and we have a century of of Jim Crow. Jim Crow is adopted by the North, and now the North and South agree on the following. Blacks are second-class citizens, and the South teaches the North, and the North goes along with it in the history of criminal justice, that Black behavior 
is to be criminalized because that's the only way to bring them to a state of slavery under the 13th Amendment. 13th Amendment says you can't have slavery. And then there's this little phrase in, in the middle of it, unless convicted of a crime. And that's where it is. So true, you cannot enslave Blacks, 13th Amendment, Civil War, we clean that up. But if they're convicted, you can be. In America, on paper, in the Constitution, you can be a slave as long as you are convicted of a crime first. So that's what they unleashed on Black people. The criminal justice system replaced slavery as a system of social control. I didn't know until relatively recently that technically slavery still hasn't been abolished in the United States. I'll read you an excerpt from a 2018 History.com article by Becky Little. Becky writes, The 13th Amendment, ratified in 1865, says, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Scholars, activists, and prisoners have linked that exception clause to the rise of a prison system that incarcerates Black people at more than five times the rate of white people and profits off of their unpaid or underpaid labor. And we'll put a link to the full article in the show notes. It's a sad commentary on the American education system that I never learned there was an exception allowing involuntary servitude until adulthood. In fact, lots of children aren't taught the truth in school, which is why Jolly Good Ginger has educated his children outside of the classroom. He's then encouraged them to educate others and to do so unapologetically. My oldest son... (laughs) My son's teachers have figured out, not even by me telling them, they know now, but before they even met me, when we finally met and they were like, you're not, you're a civil rights activist. I'm like, yeah, like, oh, that makes so much sense. I'm like, what do you mean? Because like, we can't have a history lesson in class without your son correcting everybody. It's that, it's that education at home. It's understanding, like if you truly understand this, what white supremacy is, then you understand that our books are whitewashed. Again, anytime it comes up to school, like my son, you know, at school, they were talking about how they got to the chapter where slavery ended. My son was like, yeah, so slavery has never ended. There's an exception in the 13th Amendment that actually allows for slavery. And so prisons are modern day slavery. And the other nine-year-olds in this class were not ready for this conversation. And the teacher was like, well, you're kind of right. And my son was like, no, no, I'm exactly right. And if you think I'm kind of right, then you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> my son's very unapologetic, very in your face with it. And that's what we have to do. We have to empower our children to know the truth and to understand that it's okay to know the truth. Jolly, a well-known social justice advocate, was raised in the mountains of North Carolina in a racist household in an all-white town. Growing up, he was taught racism and bigotry at home, in church, at school, everywhere. When, as a teenager, he realized he'd been taught hate and lies, he made it his mission to expose white supremacy to the world and to actively fight to dismantle it from within the white community. Jolly is on the board of directors for two nonprofit organizations, Families United and Justice Reform Group. As a national-level activist, Jolly travels the country and attends rallies, marches, and protests gives speeches at various venues, and has garnered a social media following of over 1 million subscribers. As he points out, 
Racism is embedded into every aspect of our society and deeply entrenched in the American legal system. But race is not the only relevant factor. Who gets incarcerated in America has a lot to do with race, gender, class, education, and money, or lack thereof. As Timothy told me, We relegate marginalized people to the least desirable parts of cities and then criticize them for responding to living in an unnatural environment. That's not to say that socioeconomically disadvantaged Black and brown folks, or those living in cities, are the only ones who will be charged or convicted of a crime. Damon West is a college professor, internationally known keynote speaker, and Wall Street Journal bestselling author of The Coffee Bean, A Simple Lesson to Create Positive Change, which Forbes listed in the top 20 books you need to read to crush 2020. His autobiography, The Change Agent, How a Former College QB, Sentenced to Life in Prison, Transformed His World, vividly tells how he positively transformed a Texas maximum security prison from a pot of boiling water into a pot of coffee. And as Damon, a white man who spent seven years of his life behind bars, can attest, a privileged life doesn't guarantee a perfect one. I grew up having every advantage and every privilege, every opportunity in life. White middle class guy in America, came from a two-parent home, great education, opportunities that most kids uh, would dream of having, great athlete. I got into substance abuse at a young age. When I was 10, I started drinking. When I was 12, I started smoking pot. Had a lot of character issues, but I could throw a football. I was a very gifted athlete, and I got a lot of breaks cut to me in life. Scholarship to play football at the University of North Texas. Uh, Life seemed to be going pretty smooth, but at 20 years old, I got injured against Texas A&M. And um, my football career was over, and my identity was kind of lost inside that injury as well. And I turned to more hardcore drugs to deal with my loss. Cocaine, ecstasy pills. Graduated from college in 1999. I moved off to Washington, D.C. I got a job working in Congress. I worked for a guy running for president. And in 2004, I moved to Dallas to train to be a stockbroker for one of the biggest Wall Street banks in the world. And it was at that job as a stockbroker that I was introduced to methamphetamine for the first time. And yeah, and methamphetamine is the most, I tell people all the time, it's the most evil, most destructive, most addictive drug ever created by man. And it took me about 18 months to go from working on Wall Street to living on the streets of Dallas. And as a homeless person, I started committing crimes to fund my addiction, breaking into cars, breaking into storage units, and eventually I started breaking into people's homes. And then eventually I put together my own burglary crew. And these burglaries went on for three years. They called them the Uptown Burglaries for the Uptown neighborhood of Dallas and beyond. Affluent neighborhoods were being broken into. I was breaking into people's houses. And on July 30th, 2008, a Dallas SWAT team finally took me down. They arrested me that day and then threw me in Dallas County Jail. And about a year later, I went to trial in 2009, and the jury spared no punishment at sentencing, even though these were non-aggravated property crimes where no one was ever home, no one was ever hurt. They still sentenced me to the maximum, life in prison. So it was my first felony conviction. I'm going to prison for the rest of my life. As I've already shared, Damon didn't spend the rest of his life in prison. He was a model prisoner who was released after seven years. And he told me that he saw his early release as partially attributable to his race and community connections, and partially a result of the positive impact he had on the culture where he was incarcerated. He also told me that it was a conversation with a Black male inmate that inspired him to have that impact. 
In fact, that black inmate's words of wisdom were what catalyzed Damon to be a coffee bean, a metaphor I mentioned earlier and a philosophy that Damon himself will now explain. It was a fateful conversation I had with another guy in Dallas County Jail, this old black man named Mr. Jackson, who was really like a teacher to me. And he shared with me the story of the coffee bean one day about the pot of boiling water. And in that pot of boiling water, you have three choices. You can be like the carrot that turns soft and sad and weak or an egg. An egg turns hard and mad and mean. The inside of the egg becomes hard, like people's hearts become hardened. Or you could choose to be like the coffee bean, the coffee bean that changes the pot of warm water into a pot of coffee. The coffee bean was the change agent, he said. And if you want to come home with someone your parents recognize, you're going to have to be like that coffee bean. So that was it. That was the message I took with me to prison. Be a coffee bean. Four words. The last four words Mr. Jackson ever said to me when I was leaving Dallas County Jail and it was hard to release. Prison was the most difficult thing in the world, the most racially charged environment I've ever been in my life. And, and Mr. Jackson told me to be ready for that, that everything's about race, that I had to fight the white gangs first, then the black gangs, if I wanted my independence to stand alone. But eventually I earned that right to walk alone. And I got to work into myself inside that prison. And I finally became a coffee bean. And after seven years and three months serving that life sentence, the parole board came to visit me. They had heard about the changes that were going on inside that maximum security level five penitentiary that they have never seen before and wanted to know if I could do that out in the free world. And in November 16, 2015, I walked out of prison, not necessarily a free man, because Darrell least I'm on parole to the year 2073. Yeah, I got a little time left on supervision. I got about 51 more years to take a bite out of this apple, but it's okay. I'm a, I'm a coffee bean. I mean, I don't mind being on parole because parole to me, as long as I'm a coffee bean, parole doesn't matter because I'm going to do the right thing and I'm going to find ways to be useful to the people and be a servant leader because that's what being a coffee bean is about. And I have in my new life, since I walked out of prison six years ago, you know, I started speaking to local groups and then it spread to all over the state and it was all over the country. Now it's all over the world, this message about being a coffee bean. But it's more than just that. I mean, I went back to school and got my master's in criminal justice and I'm a professor at the University of Houston downtown and I've been teaching a class called Prisons in America. And I mean, it's the only prison class in America taught by a formerly incarcerated person. And it's like the most in-depth story of prison whenever you go to take a class that a person can get. Because unlike a former warden or correctional officer or former law enforcement person that teaches a prisons class, I never went home. I was there at night. I saw what went on. I lived in that life, in that world. But part of what I've wanted to do is go out and not just share the coffee bean story, but find ways to impact the world in, in, in ways that no one's ever done. Damon's story is undeniably inspiring, and it's beautiful to see someone who recovered within the walls of a quote-unquote correctional institution be able to create positive change within a prison and then be reintegrated into life on the outside and continue to give back to his larger community. But a lot of people who go to prison aren't given that chance. And a lot of prisons, either by design or by default, tend to strip people, or try to, of their humanity. In fact, the United States has a long and shameful history of conducting non-consensual medical experiments on incarcerated inmates. A few minutes of Google searching and you'll find a wide range of cringeworthy experiments that span the gamut from drug testing to genital mutilation. Sharona Pearl is an associate professor of bioethics and history at Drexel University, a historian theorist of the face and body, and she's authored numerous books, scholarly essays, and freelance articles. Sharona told me that her research turned up the disturbing reality that at one time in our nation's history, 
many prisoners were subjected to plastic surgery. I was essentially doing some research for this chapter of this book that I'm writing about people who get plastic surgery to evade face recognition software, which you actually mostly don't have to do. Some people have done it in the past. There are lots of other ways, but I wanted to look into it. And it turns out if you look up crime and plastic surgery, this whole other world of history emerges of these programs that existed in at least 28 states in the U.S., along with Canada and England and possibly other places, but I didn't look into those, where there were programs, some of which were federally funded, many of which were ad hoc, to give incarcerated people plastic surgery as a specific strategy to reduce rates of recidivism. So the idea was that if you changed how you look, then you would be less likely once released to recommit crime and thus be re-entered into the institutions. Was this a voluntary program? Like, how did this come about? Right. So voluntary is a complicated question when you're dealing with vulnerable populations, including incarcerated people. By the ethical standards of the time, it was in the sense that people were asked to volunteer for the program. It was genuinely believed to be in their best interests and experts were administering it and would attest to this belief that this was going to be in the best interest of the population it was serving. And I have evidence of this in some of the write-ups of these programs, often a guard or somebody in very clear control of an incarcerated person's life would suggest that this would be something for which the person would be a viable candidate, i.e. you look so bad, you should do this. So can you refuse is an open question. Having said that, I think there was a decent amount of sincerity and lack of cynicism on the part of the doctors who are administering these programs. They really basically operating pro bono in some cases. In other cases, it was medical students. And that's a little more complicated when it's being used for training purposes, a lot more complicated. That was certainly the case in at least Texas and Virginia, that they were more for purposes of training rather than reduction in rates of recidivism. But sometimes it was also given as a reward, right? In some cases, it was given as part of a personal incentive system if you attended X amount of AA meetings and your room was ranked clean enough X amount of times and you got enough points to participate. That is also a little more complicated because if we're saying that this is necessary healthcare, advantageous healthcare, giving it out differentially becomes complicated. Now, the last one of these, I think, was disbanded in 1988. So it's not in practice anymore, but probably as a part of general defunding of prison programs. There's so little health care of any kind, particularly now, in the prison system that it has always been differentially distributed. As egregious as it is to subject prisoners to medical experimentation— The point is not to get you to be indignant about the ways America has treated and continues to treat those who have been removed from the social collective and incarcerated. Although that's terrible, the point I'm attempting to make is a lot broader than the need for prison reform. What I think is at the root of these abuses is dehumanization. American society has created a false demarcation line between us and them, good and bad, criminals and model citizens. 
there's been the construction of a widely held false belief system that those whose actions result in legal punishment are fundamentally different than those who don't. And that just isn't true. Hey, listeners, Zach here. Darylise and I are so grateful you've tuned in to season three of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. You probably know by now that we've partnered with Temple University's Fox School of Business to bring you this special season dedicated to DEI in the workplace. With that in mind, we ask that you send us your work-related DEI questions by calling 844-888-8148. Just leave a message with your question or send us a note through our website, www.demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. As always, we'll be joined by some amazing guest experts and thought leaders who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. Again, the number is 844-888-8148 or message us through our website, demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Who knows, your voice or your question may just make it into one of our Q&A episodes. Happy listening. Deborah, Deb Atella, told me about her experiences working for the parole and probation system. Deb is the author of the international best-selling book, Is This Job My Jam? The Guide for Grown-Ups Who Still Don't Know What They Want to Be. She's a certified life coach, Reiki master, and meditation guide, and the host of the Atella Like It Is podcast. I get a job as a probation and parole officer. It was probation, that's your sentence instead of being uh, sent to jail or prison. And then parole is you've served time and now you get out and you have to like follow all these rules and stipulations and be monitored. So I would just follow whatever the judge ruled of the parameters of what the probation sentence entailed. So the department that I worked in, everybody had to pay restitution. I had to make sure they made their restitution payments, report for their appointments with me or their phone calls with me. And that was like no computer. Everything was by hand. We had log books. This was a long time ago. And every like conversation I had had to be recorded. Every penny we collected had to be, everything was hand recorded. And I was horrified. And I was not horrified by my caseload. I was horrified by my coworkers and the way that they acted and how they were high but then they were sending people to jail, violating their probation or parole sentences for being high because we would have to urine test, drug test. It was like a soap opera in there. There were affairs and there were drugs and there was drinking and there was like all this crazy stuff and stealing, constantly stealing from each other. I walked around with my handbag under my arm the entire, I think I worked there six or seven years under my arm the whole time. Not because I worried that someone on probation or parole was going to take it, but because a coworker was going to steal. Deb said that the entire environment was toxic and unsafe, and that included all aspects of workplace culture. She told me she thought about leaving for years and that one horrific event finally precipitated her exit. I think I had like over 500 people on my caseload and then they added insurance fraud. And I was the only officer in the building that handled insurance fraud. So I have this giant caseload and then I have this other thing put on me. Over my years of working there, I got married and I had a baby. And while I'm there, I would always be like, I'm quitting. This place is crazy. I'm out of here. And I said, the day I take my baby's pictures down is the real day I quit. 
So it was just like a regular day and all the women tried to go down out of the building to lunch or whenever we left or had to go to court. We all tried to leave the building, not alone. We always tried to like buddy up. We were on a floor that was above the sex offender floor. And there was no security in the building except one security guard when you first came in the building. It was insane. Like you cannot, nothing like this, I don't think can happen now. So we would try to like buddy up whenever a woman left our floor. And another officer comes down and she says to me, are you going to lunch? And I said, I have to finish this. I'm not leaving yet. I'm sorry. I don't leave with her. Five minutes later, pandemonium, it's insanity is going on. She leaves our floor. She goes down three floors. The doors of the elevator open and that one security guard is escorting someone into the elevator. Now he should have made her get off and he didn't. Now there's no metal detectors. Like we don't know if anyone has any kind of weapons coming in the building or not. So she steps to the back of the elevator and the guard and the the sky probationer in front of her. And the probationer just takes a knife out, turns around and stabs her in the chest. She recovered. She went back to work. I was like, I would not be going back to work. She recovered. She was fine. But it was so crazy. And I stood up and I said, I quit. And I took my baby's picture. And they were like, oh, it's real. She took the baby. And I'm like, I'm sorry. Like nothing in the world, no paycheck in the world is worth me not being able to raise this baby. I got to go. Co-workers were stealing from each other and doing drugs. A violent offender attacked a woman in an elevator. The whole environment was dangerous and destructive. And I'd argue that it's our environments that shape how we behave. If we were to let go of the incorrect idea that individual actions exist outside of a complicated context and begin to take a more holistic view of the role social structures and scaffolds play in human behavior— Then we could focus on shaping society in ways that promote care and cohesion, rather than allowing structures to negatively shape those of us who exist within them. And we can see that shaping taking place even at an early age. For instance, Tamara and I spoke about the connection between education and incarceration. The school-to-prison pipeline refers to the flow of students from the classroom to juvenile delinquency, to a court-involved status. Students of color, students with disabilities, are disproportionately more likely to face school pushout, which means that they're more likely to be suspended or expelled from school or not appropriately served while they're in school. And so there are a lot of studies that show that A student who has been suspended once is more likely to be suspended. There are studies that show that students who have been expelled once are more likely to pick up a delinquency charge. Once students have an exposure in the juvenile delinquency system, they become more likely to experience charges in the adult criminal system, charges which could ultimately lead to prison, right, to incarceration. So if we're trying to reduce the incarceration population, we again have to go upstream and look at all of the factors that set someone up 
for involvement in our criminal justice system. And so if we take these statistics and follow them to the root, it's about what's happening in the school. So there's a really important opportunity for those of us who are advocates to focus on ways to keep kids in school because we know that it's going to shield them from a possibility of ending up in our criminal justice system. Statistically, Black students are suspended and expelled at a rate three times greater than white students. Students with disabilities are more than twice as likely to receive out-of-school suspension than non-disabled peers, right? So this first experience of how we respond to lessons of right and wrong are really punitive for some students more so than other students. Some students have the privilege of getting into fights and people step back and say, oh, kids will be kids. And then we have some students who would perform the same behavior and we say, you know what? You are going to be suspended. You are going to be expelled. So we're setting up these frameworks for who merits forgiveness and who merits nurturing. And I think that those reinforce other kinds of power differentials and they align along race. They align along assumptions about ability, right? Ableist beliefs, right? So we're seeing those distinctions, those sort of caste distinctions be made in how we respond to cases of student discipline. I also want to share just sort of anecdotally, I've been to public schools in a variety of of different school systems across the United States. And unfortunately, you can see parallels between how some public schools treat their students and how some minimum facility securities treat their residents. Having everybody line up, up against the wall, no talking, right? Single file, we're going to pat you down. We're going to do all these different things. And I, I know that some people will say, well, we're trying to ensure student safety, right? We run students through medical detectors because we want them to be safe. We line students up against the wall because we want them to be safe. And I empathize with that position. I can't help but to observe the similarities and the similarities that I observe make me also wonder what future are we preparing young people for? Are we training our little ones when we tell them to line up against the wall for a future in which they might be lined up against a different wall because they're facing criminal charges? If we really want to prepare our students for a world in which they're valued for their intellectual contribution or for the work of their hands or for the work of their artistic ability, is ensuring safety in these ways negating the possibility of getting the other benefits that these young people have to offer us as a broader society? And I don't have an answer for that, but it does raise a lot of questions. Arthur also spoke about the link between how certain young people are treated and whether or not they're destined for a life in the criminal justice system. One of the problems with prison is this, especially with juveniles. If you lock up a juvenile the wrong time, they don't understand consequences. If you lock up a different juvenile the wrong time, they get institutionalized and jaded. It's not a one-size-fits-all. Some juveniles need to be put under the prison and kept there. Some of them, are just too far gone. Other juveniles, they're just young, stupid, acting the fool. But if you put them in prison, they'll get hurt and there'll be no fixing it. And there's a difference. And knowing the difference when you are a prosecutor, a cop, 
a judge, probation, and parole officer is the whole game. If we want to create a more equitable legal system, we have to invest in models that see the potential in people and that humanize those who have historically been dehumanized and devalued. But that requires seeing the administration of justice through a particular lens. According to Arthur, ideally the American legal system would operate under the guardian model, where attorneys, judges, and law enforcement would take an active role in ensuring that society's most marginalized are valued and protected, and that we uphold principles of equity and dignity for individuals of all social demographics. Just before ending our interview, he told me one last story. The story goes that Back in the 80s, you had crack prostitutes. Now, crack prostitutes are at the bottom of the food chain as far as prostitutes are concerned. There is no lower than a crack prostitute, okay? So this is a story the prosecutor told me. This crack prostitute goes to two police officers and tells the police officers she just got raped. Now, already you know the police are not, yeah, really? Because you could look at her and know she was a crack prostitute. She was that bad. So she says the guy that did it is in this hotel. This hotel, you book it for 40 minutes. It's that kind of hotel. Okay, so the cops go over. The guy opens up. They look at him. He's barely any better than she is. And she says that he raped her. He says, no, I paid her some crack and we had sex and she got angry at me. All right, the cops saying, I'm not burning five hours of report writing time on this. Go take it to the prosecutor. All right, make long story short, this prosecutor gets the case. The prosecutor believes her. Now, on paper, the prosecutor can prove the rape occurred on paper. In reality, he expects to lose this case in total. He puts this case in the lost column going into court. But the reason he goes to trial is because he told the defense attorney, you know what? Your boy did this. We're going to trial. He's going to suffer the two days of trial. I know I'm going to lose. But your boy's going to sweat the two days because he took advantage of this girl and that shouldn't happen. And I'm going to defend that principle, the minister of justice model. Okay, so he goes to trial. Remember, he walks in expecting to lose. Here we put this in the lost column. So he has her on the witness stand. Now, by this time, we're talking about a year later, she's pulled herself together because of this incident. So she's sitting on the witness stand, and she looks like somebody trying to pull it together. So he asks her some questions. He says he didn't plan on asking, so he just asked her, because he's going to lose the case anyway. He asks her, what do you think about all this? And she looks at the jury and says, I blame myself. I knew he was no good, but I was crack addicted. I needed the crack and I did it anyway. I knew he was no good and he took advantage of me, but I put myself in that situation and I'm not pretending I didn't. Tears are coming down her eyes and she looks like somebody trying to pull themselves together. Now, this is an all black jury in a black town. So much for the idea that blacks will not convict black males. So much for that. Jury comes back two hours later, guilty rape one. Everybody faints in the courtroom. Judge doesn't believe it. The defendant doesn't believe it. And the prosecutor doesn't. He's like, okay. So they take my man to jail on rape one, his life as he knows it is over. Jury comes out. He says everybody is, is crying. And the older women that were on the jury, you can tell this was a this was a defense attorney, didn't know what he was doing for a deer, because you would not have put them on the jury. That's a whole other story. They come out and they grab the girl and they're crying. And, you know, the older ones instantly have grandma status and they're hugging her and telling her, sweetheart, you've done well. You don't worry about anything. You're lovable. You go out and make something of yourself. Everybody's crying all over the place. 
he goes back and gets a promotion because he won this case. I tell this story because this is what the minister of justice model is. He didn't take the case because he thought he could win and put it in his win column. He was defending a principle. You took advantage of this poor girl because you knew you could. And you think you're going to walk away because she was at the bottom end of her life and nobody thought anything of her. Well, you know what? I do, and I'm going to lose this case, but you're going to suffer two days of trial because you did wrong, and I say so. And I'm going to defend the principle. You cannot take advantage of the weak simply because they're so weak, nobody cares. That's a minister because he clearly planned on losing. He had no pretense he was going to win this case. He went in to lose, but he went in to defend a principle. And that's the minister of justice concept. Prosecutors, there's a principle they're defending by their existence and what they do. And so I tell this story to my students to engage them to see that the criminal justice system is, is not a mindless machine you just drop on people. There's a principle that is defending. The legal system is more than a bunch of legalese, the reading of which makes our eyes glaze over. It has tangible ramifications in people's lives, including allowing the most marginalized to tell their stories and know that they have value within American society. And at the same time, we can't lose sight of the fact that those who do harm also have value. But I think it's important to start with those who have been violated and victimized, because those are often the people with the least amount of power and capital. Hey, listeners, Zach James here, partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And I wanted to share with you some of the great things we're doing in the DEI space. Since the beginning of 2020, myself, Darylise, and our DEI team have facilitated numerous corporate trainings, engaging workshops, one-on-one coaching sessions, and so much more, both virtual and in person. To find out how you can work with us, whether you are an individual or representing an organization, school, corporation, or any other type of group seeking diversity, equity, and inclusion education, head over to demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com backslash DEI services to send us a message or to fill out our DEI survey. Darylise is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 300 people, becoming a TEDx speaker, as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you up-level your DEI skills to improve your productivity, profitability, and interpersonal relationships. So connect with us at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com backslash DEI services and get yourself a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And don't forget the workbook too. Happy learning. Chair Burroughs shared with me that she considers it a sacred responsibility to act as another person's legal advocate. It's a real responsibility and a privilege to help someone who is in those circumstances. We have folks who come to us and share things that they haven't even told their families. And we really try very hard, given one of the things that we are always cognizant of is that each person's situation is unique and have looked to training. And I would like to continue to build on this kind of training. We had some training for folks who really, sometimes you have a really egregious situation where there has been physical harm 
threats of physical abuse or actual physical sexual assault or something really extreme. And so to really train our folks with how do you deal with that kind of trauma in an appropriate way when someone comes to report it? Because under our statutes, there is not just say back pay or get your job back, but there's also the ability to get compensated for pain and suffering, if you will. So we do have to, during the course of the investigation, ask about those things so that we can measure it, so that we can, in good faith, say to the employer when we're trying to settle, hey, in addition to, we're not just talking about back pay, we're talking about the real psychological trauma that comes forward. And it's interesting because earlier in my career, I had a position as a career federal employee that did some of the investigating and also got to go to trial and litigate those cases, had the experience of interviewing folks. And one of the things that I discovered is it is a very different kind of interview. And sometimes the more extreme the discrimination is, the harder it is to get the evidence. And so you may have to ask the question more than once and in a different way and evaluate that person in a different way. So it it can take time. Investing time in others and time in bringing about improvements in individuals' lives and in the overall system is where we see humanity at its best. And so the law has to be equipped to make space for that. Here's Tomar again. I think for lawyers who want to connect with clients, taking the time to grow your cultural competence, which is not to say that culture can sort of be learned and mastered, and then you'll be able to to communicate with clients all over. But it's about awareness of difference and awareness of how structures cause people of a variety of differences to have different experiences. Your awareness of structures that reinforce power differentials and how that can impact the lived reality of your clients. If lawyers can build those structural and cultural competencies, they're going to be better able to empathize with their clients, which means they're going to be better able to make relationships with their clients. They're going to have a stronger trust bond, which can be really helpful for the practicalities of law, fact development, and client counseling. But I also think it just makes for a better world. Our legal system can be really hostile to people. It can be perceived as really hostile to people who don't have regular interaction with people who go to court regularly, that don't have regular interaction with judges, right? There's a perception of difference that people can feel when they have to address a legal problem. And so to the extent that we can bring that empathy and that inclusion and that equity to our practice, we are creating more access for clients. We're a better conduit for our clients to bring them in to the court system, to understand what's going to be asked of them and to assist them in their own personal pursuit of justice for whatever the challenges that they're facing. Bringing a human element to the law is especially important when engaging with populations that lack agency. Steph told me about her experiences as a child advocate. That is a whole other level of emotionally charged. And also as a young mother, I think I have personal 
connection to the work in a different way than others might. But I've seen some really difficult and challenging situations of our most vulnerable people, right? These young children who, in many instances, don't have any consistency in their life, don't have any role models, and are put in horrible situations from physical abuse by a parent, by a alleged trusted adults that that parent brings into the home, and even if not physical abuse, emotional abuse, and really destitute, below poverty situations that are just very challenging to see for our young population. How did you get into that work, Steph? So my mother was actually a child advocate for many years and a great legal role model to me. She was a family law lawyer, but for her pro bono work, her work for the community, she assisted in many child advocacy matters over many years. So I saw from a young age the importance of using your legal degree to give back in a way that's important. And so when I started practicing, there's a wonderful nonprofit organization in Philly, the Support Center for the Child Advocates, that I was able to get trained from and work with. And even though it's not my legal area of expertise in my work at my law firm, I receive the training. They do great mentorship. And there's a group of blind groom attorneys at my firm who all do this work. So you kind of have this pooled resources. And, you know, I take on one matter at a time, partially because of the emotionality of it. You want to be able to connect with your client. So I want to meet the child. I want to see where they're living so I can really understand and explain to the judge what's in the child's best interest and what the issues are. And it's challenging work, but it's rewarding in a different way because these kids need our help. I think it speaks volumes that Steph's early childhood examples have inspired her to give back to the community. And for those whose early examples and experiences are traumatic, it's easy to see how they might follow in a different set of footprints. It's important to think about the ways in which the legal system continues to reinforce structural inequities. It's humanizing to remember that people, like the law, are shaped by precedent. Generational trauma is passed down. Cycles of abuse continue. We have to be aware of the human element and to interrogate existing systems, or else there can be no justice or equity. Here's Timothy again. I would say that we are people and that we cannot fully divorce our personhood from the work that we do. Particularly within the law, there's a temptation to tell us to strip our personal beliefs and perspectives from the work that we do in the pursuit of objectivity. And I often tell people that objectivity is a myth. We all are people, we have our perspectives, we have our biases and prejudices, and and that informs who we are. And so as it relates to the law and bringing those things in, the, the hope is that you're able to synthesize those experiences and perspectives and still practice in a way that's fair and equitable. I think that the personal Perspectives helps to humanize the work and help us to see the beauty and the depth and dignity of people. But I think that we cannot lean wholly on our experiences either. I think that we should find ways to inform and augment what we're doing with other types of resources, experiences, and things like that. The more we can thread humanity through the legal system, from the creation of laws, policies, and procedures, to their implementation, reinforcement, and adjudication, 
the more people will be truly served in equitable and inclusive ways, which then builds greater social cohesion and better lives at work, at home, and everywhere. Here's Tomar again. There is a zero-sum mentality when it comes to what a lot of people think of as legal practice, right? We think of winners and losers. And in that kind of a, of a zero-sum, all-or-nothing scenario, values like non-judgment and receiving and believing can seem out of place. I think it's important for law students especially to see all of these frameworks as tools. So you might find yourself in a situation where a client is really asking you to come out with outcome X. And so you are in a really black and white zero sum framework. But if the law student hasn't been exposed to the possibility of alternative ways of thinking, like distributive bargaining, where you're looking for solutions that create win-wins, or you have a sense of your own professional role that's not completely rooted in being the right or being the winner, but in maintaining a sense of justice, which might have broader contours, then at least you're able to distinguish, okay, what situation am I in and what tools are appropriate for the context? I don't imagine that our law students practice in a world that isn't fraught with the the tensions and the realities and the challenges that our world really has. But I think that our job as legal educators are to give them an array of tools and give them the capacity to discern their situation so that when there are opportunities to bring in those values that are aligned with anti-racism and breaking down structural inequity, they are empowered to use them. If we teach students that there are only zero-sum rules and that we only have a zero-sum world, that is the world that we will continue to inherit. But if we teach students that there are multiple ways of seeing the world and interacting in the world and bringing out change, then I think we're more likely to have practitioners and leaders and policymakers who are able to find those opportunities to produce change. And we will have a world that slowly but steadily arcs toward toward justice. Ideally, the world will arc towards justice and new generations of lawyers will have a lot to do with bringing that about which is why many legal educators are inviting their students to think about not recreating what was, but about reimagining something better. Natalie Peterson is an associate professor of legal studies at Drexel University's Labau College of Business, vice president of the employment law section of the Academy of Legal Studies in Business, and the secretary of the Mid-Atlantic Academy of Legal Studies in Business. In my class, we always talk about the law as it is, because it's really important that you know that. But then also like the law as you want it to be, or as we think it should be, right? And so is this law, is it in line with the policies that you agree with, right? And so to always be thinking policy-wise. And so, you know, I always have them do a policy paper looking at an area of law and saying, this was the purpose of the law. This is how the case law has developed. This is where I think it's gotten away from either the purpose of the law or what the law should be doing now. And this is how we can kind of bring things more back in line. First and foremost, and I say this to my law students, I say this to my undergrad business students that take legal studies courses, know the substance of the law. It's important, but don't lose your ability to critically think about it just by memorizing sort of what the law is, right? Because just what it is doesn't mean that's what it should be, right? And we can change it and we can help to move the needle. And so always have that perspective. And then I think 
for employment, always thinking about things from a fairness perspective. And then sort of, and I know this probably sounds maybe not as law school as you know you would expect, but sort of an empathy perspective, right? Try to think about the perspectives and the feelings on each side and what's going on here. And can there be solutions that are create value for both sides, right? And create value for society. And sometimes I think with legal cases, it always feels like someone has to win and someone has to lose. And that's what happens in the courts. But as you go out as law students and take on clients or things like that, can you create value for both sides in some way before it even has to get to court? Or, you know, what does that look like? And so much of employment law and what employment lawyers do has to do with training. And so that's where I think it's also a really interesting area of the law that so, so-called sort of defense attorneys, right? So those who tend to represent the business, a big part of what they do is to train their clients, right? And to train the employees of their clients on what is and isn't acceptable, right? And so in that area, you have this huge potential for businesses to be doing good. And so I talked to my friends who are at big firms and representing these businesses, and they want them to be doing the right thing. So before it even becomes a lawsuit, train people, help them create a culture. I think the company culture is so important, a culture that's tolerant of all different types of people that celebrates diversity, that is supportive of parenthood, right? It's supportive of different lifestyle choices. When it comes down to it, I think the studies definitely show that happy employees don't tend to sue their employers, right? So even if something happens in the workplace that they're not happy with, their first thought isn't, I'm going to sue, right? It's I wonder what happened here or how can we work this out? Rather, if you're in a workplace where you feel like you're being treated unfairly all the time, and then something happens that you think could be discriminatory or something, the first remedy might be, oh, I'm going to sue, right? So there's so many upsides to creating that culture. And I think it just comes from sort of a focus on empathy and, and fairness. It's clear that there has to be greater diversity in the legal profession and that that has to be at the forefront of applying not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law as well. Because so far, we lack precedent for that. So let's work to create a legal system that places empathy at the forefront. And let's find a way to expand justice so that it is equitable and inclusive by design. Can we move forward differently? To foster greater equity Even if we don't always understand Fairness we can and should demand Let's embrace one another Single colleagues, working mothers People of all points of view Can we see each other through? Thank you to this episode's guests. Charlotte Alexander, Jackie Lipton, Liz Brown, Crystal Harold, Timothy Welbeck, Arthur Garrison, Steph Gantman Kaplan, Leora Eisenstadt, Tomar Pearson Brown, Jolly Good Ginger, Damon West, Sharona Pearl, Deb Atella, and Natalie Peterson, and to our episode sponsor, Vita Supreme. Every episode of this season of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by me, Dara Lise Lyons, with Azaria Keys, Assistant Director of Sedwick, Co-Producer and Coordination Consultant, Leora Eisenstadt, Sedwick Director, Assistant Producer and Consultant, Zach James, Co-Collaborator and Marketing Manager, 
Paul Kondo, assistant producer and editor. Jimmy Goodman at Leopard Studio, audio technician and consultant. Stuart Kreintz, production and development assistant. And Sunny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator. The music you heard is Demystifying Diversity, an original composition, the lyrics of which were written by me, Dara Lee Lyons, in collaboration with Ramon Beeftink, who also created all the music and performed vocals and instrumentals. If you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, wherever books are sold. Join us next week for a question and answer episode, and in the meantime, Let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world.